The biggest battle we will ever have to face is the battle between you and you. It's the battle of taking your mind to that limit and then breaking through. On the Mindful Experiment podcast, we will share concepts, universal laws, and interviewing individuals who have done just that, who have gone through the dark times and through those moments allowed their light to shine bright. I'm your host, Dr. Vic Manzo, and I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and taking this journey with me as we discover different avenues to break through those limits, expand your reality, and evolve into the person you desire to be. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. This show is sponsored by Empower Your Reality. Empower Your Reality is an online consciousness school that is designed to help you elevate the mind, raise your consciousness, your vibration, to attract and create the reality of what it is that you desire. On Empower Empower Your Reality, we have books, we have online classes, you can find the podcast here on there, and other things that can help you elevate and truly Learn the art and the science of creating the reality of what it is that you want to experience in your life. So for more information to check out all that we're up to and what we're doing, please visit www.empoweryourreality.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, everyone. This is Dr. Vic, and you're listening to The Mindful Experiment. Excited to have you on today as I have an amazing guest that we uh, able to dive in deep into mindset, limited belief systems, imposter syndrome, traumatic events in life, how to be resilient, and how to have post-traumatic growth and personal transformation. My guest today is Kirsten Besky, and she is the founder of A Pro Positive LLC and Kirsten Besky Coaching. As a mindset and transformational expert, she helps people interested in personal growth and advanced mindset concepts who want to keep stretching the boundaries of personal mastery for greater impact on the world. She teaches professionals and entrepreneurs how to break through invisible inner barriers to attain more clarity, impact, and ease in life and business. Kirsten is a Harvard-educated, experienced psychotherapist and mindset coach specializing in helping women master their own internal world to achieve success. She's a former litigation attorney. She pivoted mid-career to align with her higher purpose and skill set. With over a decade as a clinical psychotherapist and now mindset coach, she serves others to expand, transform, and attain their full limitless potential. I'm excited to have her on. I'm excited to share this wonderful interview we had. We um, we have a lot of crossover between each other, so it was a lot of fun to just dive in and pick her brain on different concepts and to really help share with you guys, the listeners, to gain how to create transformation in your life, how to handle the post-traumatic issues that we may have, You know how to get there to create growth, how to break through, how to tap into the subconscious mind, and so much more. So without any further ado, here is... Kirsten Besky. Kirsten, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you on. I, I did my due diligence, looked at your background, a um, lot of some um, 
um, crossover here. So it's going to be a lot of fun to just pick your brain and then more importantly, to have the listeners be able to benefit from all this. So uh, thanks for taking time to be on the show. Yes. And I did my due diligence too. So I was actually happily surprised how much we overlap. So this will be fun. Awesome. So as always, my listeners always know, you know, the, one of the main questions I always like to start with is um, the story of how you got into what you're doing and what you're up to in today's, in, in today's time. So if you mind sharing, how, how did you get into what you're doing? How, was it more of like a, uh, a straight narrow line or was it more of like, I call it the pinball effect where you get bounced around and all of a sudden it's like, boom, here we go. Definitely the pinball effect. Um, yeah. So, so what I'm doing now is I'm a mindset coach um, uh, and I work with people through transformation. So it's not, it's not a necessarily a success coach, although that comes from it all, but it's um, work, helping people work through the process of really moving to like the next level of, of what they want out of life. And because I'm sure you've experienced this, the process of transformation is sometimes painful and uncomfortable because it, you get out of your comfort zone. Um, you know, I have this process that I work with people so that they stick with it long enough to actually see the results from the process. And But I definitely got here a very circuitous way. Um, and so in my own way, I'm, I'm a transformation expert, not just by training because I'm a clinical psychotherapist, um, but also because I've lived through several different phases of life. Um, and, and I started uh, out of college not knowing what I wanted to do, but ending up deciding that practicing law sounded like a great way to make a living. So I did all the things um, that one does when they want to go to law school and practice law. And so I started at a big, huge law firm in Boston that had this beautiful view out of the Boston Harbor. I could see the yachts pull in from my office window and it was fancy and, and wonderful. And I got to use my my brain. Um, I was a competitive athlete growing up. I was a, a competitive tennis player. And so I played uh, kind of tournaments all over the country growing up. So I had this and I played in college also um, on my um, very successful team. I was at the bottom of their ladder. And so I had this idea like, oh, I love competition. Competition is fun. Being a lawyer is a form of competition. This will be great. And so I became a litigator. And if you know anything about the world of law and litigation, um, it's actually quite um, I guess the word would, I could just use challenging um, because what you are actually doing is you're like a paid warrior to fight for your client. And I enjoyed that for a long time. I, you know, you fight with your intellect, you fight with your words, you go into court, you try cases. And um, I really enjoyed that. Um, and so I enjoyed that for a good 10 to 14 years around year 10 uh, is when I actually had my, my children. So I was a partner at a law firm by then and uh, decided that it was time to have kids. Cause as you know, with women, your biological clock does tick. And if you're going to have kids, you got to pull the trigger sometime. And I was getting to be that time. And so um, my first child was a challenge because first I was on bed rest for three months. And you can imagine taking an athlete who's really uh, very physical and active all the time. And then saying, no, you have to actually stay either in your bed or on a lazy boy recliner for three months to make sure this baby doesn't come out. <laughs> right? So I learned how to practice law from my lazy boy recliner, you know, faxing back. In, this was long enough ago. We didn't actually have all the technology that we have now um, and made it through my three months, had my baby exciting, my little daughter go to our one week well baby visit. 
And I, I'm waiting for the checkup and the doctor's like, Hmm, is your baby upset? And I'm like, looked at my child who did not look at all upset. I'm like, yeah, no. Why do you ask? <laughs> and she's like, Hmm, wait one moment. Comes back with the EKG machine, hooks her all up. And then looks at me calmly and says, will you please carry your daughter over to the emergency room? I'll meet you there in, four, in, in a minute. And so I had to walk from one end of the hospital campus to the other, to the emergency room. And then just all hell broke loose because apparently my daughter's heart was in a tachycardia beating over 300 beats a minute. And I had no idea. There was no visible exterior signs about this. So once we hit the, the emergency room, doctors are running around like crazy. Nurses are running around. They're on a telephone because I live in a relatively rural area of Vermont. And so the, the biggest tertiary hospitals up in Dartmouth, New Hampshire. So they're on the phone to Dartmouth to send down the helicopter because they've got this emergency and they can't get the IV in the baby because the veins are too small. And I'm just kind of went into that tunnel zone of, you know, shock um, while I, you know, just sat and watched all this happen. So the helicopter comes down from Dartmouth. They put the baby in a, you know, um, her, my baby's name's Cassandra. They put her in an isolate, snap her into the helicopter and let me go on the helicopter with her, which was apparently an exception because uh, they only let the patient on the helicopter usually, but they made the exception for that five pound, 11 ounce baby, right? That I could come <laughs> along. And so thankfully when they snapped the isolate in the helicopter, um, the loud noise somehow they thought snapped her out of the tachycardia. So the nurse was able to say to me, don't worry, mom, you know, she's not, her heart's beating at a normal rate now. She will not die on this ride. And I was like, oh, thank you. So we got this ride up to Dartmouth and then a series of tests and this and that, and they didn't know what it was. And they thought it was a blood clot. And then it they realized it wasn't changing. So it was a tumor, a too big tumor in her like left ventricle. So that required us to then get to Boston, to Boston Children's Hospital, where these wonderful old gray haired, wise surgeons tried to figure out what to do. And apparently the type of tumor it was, was something that might get reabsorbed by the, by the body all by itself by time she was three, but because it was of a certain size, um, it was very likely to throw her heart back in a tachycardia at any time. And I wouldn't know. So they decided it was neat. They needed to take it out to be safe. And that meant open heart bypass surgery on this little itty bitty baby where they actually put the little itty bitty baby on a heart lung bypass machine while they stopped the heart and do the surgery. So the great news is everything went fabulous. Uh, she came home on very little medication and literally has never had any trouble for the next, and she'll be 21 next month, you know, for 21 years of her life, no trouble with the heart. So you'd think happy story, great, you know, great ending. Yay team. And so my then husband and I said out loud, well, what could be worse than open heart surgery on your infant? Let's have another one. And we definitely found out, unfortunately, what can be worse than that? Because, I became pregnant with my second child and around the same time that I had gone on bed rest with Cass, 9-11 um, happened. Um, and so I unfortunately had one of my uh, close childhood friends, actually my first boyfriend, um, I had, uh, he died in one of the towers. And it was, if you recall during those times, 
you weren't sure who was alive and who wasn't alive for a while because they couldn't find people. So it was a couple weeks after 9-11, I was going to then be able to go to his funeral and I was pregnant. So I, I wanted to make sure that was okay with my OBGYN. She checked me out, made sure I was good to go because I had been so upset around 9-11. And unfortunately, I went into labor that evening. And so to put this in perspective, I was um, due with this child January 7th, and he was born on September 24th. So he was over three months early and he, he was one pound, 11 ounces, and we were given very little reason to think he would live. Um, and so the miracle worker workers up at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center, again, I got to, I got to revisit the NICU up at Dartmouth. Um, they have, you know, this is again, now 20 years ago, they had this amazing way that they can keep the babies alive. So, um, he struggled through so many different challenges and almost died more than once. And in one instance in very much particular where the, he had a hole in his uh, bowel apparently. And they said that, uh, if, that, you know, they needed to figure out how to stop that problem or he would die. And I said, well, can't you operate on him? And they said, well, no, we, if we take him into surgery, he'll never make it through. He's too fragile. And then about five minutes later, they said, we're going to take him into surgery. And I said, you told me that you, he wouldn't survive surgery. And they said, yes, this is the only thing we can do at this point. Um, so another miracle happens. He makes it through the surgery and he survives that he survives breathing issues. He survives having an ostomy bag on for a short period of time. And now he's this wonderful 19 year old, tall, smelly, <laughs> strong young man. Um, and it, it, it's fabulous. He literally dodged all these different bullets along the way. So the reason I go through all this is because this was my personal trauma and I didn't even know it because in uh, many people, when they experience really challenging, hard situations, they have a lot of good coping skills. So they put their head down and they do what they need to do and they get through the challenge and they think they're okay. And I remember, you know, the social workers at the hospital checking in on me, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. You know, cause I was good with crisis and I was good with, you know, doing the things that needed to be done. And I was holding it all together. And, you know, with the help of my then husband, we, we really managed this very difficult situation for a long time. And when everybody finally was healthy and stable, um, apparently this is a normal pace of life. Um, I then had my breakdown, right? So I would, the whole time that I had these kids doing these things, I was trying to maintain my law practice. Um, and if, as you remember, I entered this field of litigation because I love to fight, but when you have two kids at home and have been through that level of disruption, uh, you lose a little of your joy to uh, fight with people on a daily basis. Um, and so I really started not enjoying my work because I was constantly fighting with people. And I really started um, a little bit of down that existential path of reconsidering what's important in life, especially having a child right after 9-11. You know, you really do start to think, what why do we bring kids into this world? What is the meaning of life? And why do we do this, right? And so I think I've heard you talk about kind of end of suffering as, as a goal for all of us. 
And uh, I definitely dived deep into the Buddhist psychology that I was already, you know, dabbling in before this and did a lot of internal searching and value re-evaluating and realized that I, I really needed to find something different to do for my profession because I wasn't meeting my value system because I did go into the law to help people. And as a result of circumstances like law school debt and circumstances like just learning how to represent people on the defense side of things, I was representing really large companies like, you know, your, your Verizons and your Walmarts and those big companies that um, can afford to hire lawyers. And it wasn't actually meeting my sense of kind of social justice in addition to having to fight with people who are often quite unreasonable. If you know any lawyers, <laughs> you know, um, it can get a little bit um, ugly. I remember one lawyer writing in his brief to the court that my, that Ms. Besky's personal issues have delayed this case one time too many, referring to some of the extensions I had needed because of my kids. And that just about put me over the edge. So um, knowing I needed to do something different, but not knowing what, I went to a coach myself um, and this fabulous woman named Allison Villars who was offering career coaching services. And I didn't know what that was. And she led me through a holistic process that evaluate what I, you know, basically was able to get your meaning and purpose sorted through and your interests and desires and the kind of audience you wanted to serve or work with. And so we came up with at the end of it all that, I would love to go back to school and get a, a degree in psychology to go into counseling. And it was something I never in a million years would have let myself even consider if we hadn't gone through this whole process that showed me how it lined up with my value systems and, and desires. So, um, you know, she said to me at the time, she said, well, I said, well, what, I think I, I'm jealous of this person who's going back and getting a master's in psychology. She said, well, why don't you do that? I'm like, well, that would, that's impossible. And she's like, why? And I said, well, I mean, that would just be so much fun because <laughs> in my mind, I mean, I love to learn and I'm always learning. And it seemed like the most fun thing I could possibly do in the world would be to go back to school and learn about psychology so I could become a clinician. And so eventually she let, helped me shift to a point of saying yes to that desire. Um, and thankfully I had the resources to do that. And so I went back to school and I got my master's level degree. So that's why I'm a clinical psychotherapist. And I, for the last decade plus now, I've been a, a, a therapist. And then the last three years, I um, really started to move into the field of positive psychology because uh, it's a relatively new field. And I'm sure you're familiar with the work out of the University of Pennsylvania and Martin Seligman and kind of the, those actual scientific evidence-based research around what makes people thrive. So it went from just kind of pop psycho psychology into like an actual evidence-based field where studies were being done and it was getting more and more fleshed out. How do people thrive? How do you find flow? How do you get meaning and purpose? Um, you know, what makes, uh, what thought patterns encourage positivity and then actually having some, some science-based evidence behind these things, which was to me very attractive. So I went and got a certification in positive psychology. Um, and then I, I started using it with my psychotherapy clients when it was appropriate. And I loved the idea that a lot of us have those 
um, places that we, we were not functioning well. And when we go to counselors, we work often on those places. But the other part of us is perfectly healthy um, and doesn't have, quote, problems, but we still want to work on ourselves, right? We still want to grow and expand and expand into our full potential. So um, the positive psychology gave me these tools I could use to help people really move towards thriving. And then I realized that I could share more of these tools with people um, if I started coaching, because to be very clear and ethical, psychotherapy really is kind of something that's been in the medical system. And you don't, um, you, you do certain work with people who are trying to work through their particular diagnoses to be able to function well in the world. Coaching work that I do is completely separate from that. And it's working with people who are functioning okay, and they just want to function better. And so that just started me down this path of really helping people move through um, stages of change to become the next best version of themselves. And it, it's such gratifying work that I've kind of never looked back. So, um, so, in, <laughs> so there's the long version story of how I got to be where I am today. <laughs> I love it. What a story that is. I mean, so much ups and downs and, and, and transformations and changes and all that just to lead to where you are now. I think that's just amazing. And, um, you know, kudos to you when it comes to all that. And I can relate. I mean, I wasn't around when this happened, but my sister was a preemie and she was like a pound 15 ounces back in 1979. Wow. And uh, she died a few times, came back. They called her the miracle baby. Um and, uh, you know, so she's, she's now at 41, uh, with a couple of kiddos and it's been an amazing journey. And it was interesting. Her daughter, my niece was actually born and put in the NICU cause she was a little early. Um, the same place that where my sister was. Wow. That is amazing. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, and I read if you talked to your mom about it and, and today she would still end up crying. You yeah, know, she totally. told you the story. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like different. walking through the halls and she's like, Oh, this is memory. This is a little, it looks different, but it's still the same. Yep. You know, yep. being there and how much they spend time, which I know you can relate to that. Um, when it comes to um with with, with all the, the 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 traumas that you went through in this, that's kind of those types of things. I always like to ask this question because I have a belief system. Um, I, just from my own experiences and in working with others and, and seeing how traumas and those types of things can really help us grow and evolve. You talked about individuals who go through that, where they just put their head down and they just go, just get through it. And I was one of those people growing up until I learned to sit with it. And then it was like, wow, okay, this is not fun. But um, the lessons and the wisdom that came through that was drastically, unbelievably amazing. How does trauma play a role for us? And does it help us in some way or another? I mean, I know it could be the opposite too. I'd love to get your opinion on both. Yeah. Well, so trauma that you can survive um, and then process, um, and that's one of the key elements, um, can can really be transformational opportunity for a person. So obviously we never would wish trauma on anyone ever. Um, and, um, you know, the technical definition of trauma is fear of your life or the life of someone you love, right? You know, well, that's not very technical, but that's the, in a nutshell, you know, how the psychologists define trauma. Um, so you never would want to put anyone through that. And then there's chronic trauma where you have some insults and um, assaults on your safety and your well-being over time that can accumulate as well. And so if you're able to have a safe place to process that trauma, and you're able to make sense of it, 
often what that does is give you um, new perspective on priorities, um, new perspective on values and what's important to you. And um, there is that inner confidence that can come from knowing that you've survived a trauma, right? You've done a hard thing. You might've done it on your own, or you might've used some supports, but the idea is that you went through that whole cycle of going from not trauma through the middle of being very, very um, activated with your nervous system and on high alert for however long it took, and then figured out Hopefully, if you if you've done this kind of work, hopefully you figured out how to then re-regulate yourself and start to move forward. And that's what we call post-traumatic growth, where you actually take the experience and lessons you learned about yourself and the world and translate that and transmute it into something even better for yourself and maybe better for others. I love that. And then why is it sometimes people let the trauma take them over? Well, and we, and I guess I would ask you, um, in the moment or afterwards? Like afterwards, like, you know, it's when I always get the image of like a barbed wire, they're holding on to it and they won't let go or, right. and it, that kind of experience where they just can't let it go. Yeah. Well, so, you know, obviously this is a topic up for the ages, right. You know, that we've all been working on for time, but I, what, in um what I believe is, that energetically our nervous system gets so activated when we go through trauma. And if you think about the actual neurobiology of it all, you know, with your adrenaline triggering and your cortisol triggering, um, and then if it happens and you're in that state for an extended length of time, you're you're developing these high alert pathways of, of, um, of fear, basically. Um, and your body never gets a chance to um, let go of that and learn how to re-regulate itself um, because it doesn't feel safe enough to do that. So one of the first steps that when you work with people who've been through trauma is, is to um, really introduce ways of down-regulating the nervous system that, so that person can actually have moments of feeling safe and then learn how to recreate those moments um, for themselves through either, you know, you've talked before, I know, to, to guess around mindfulness and meditation, um, or, you know, these days there's even like biofeedback, um, hypnosis, there's, there's a lot of different modalities that people can access that would help them learn how to downregulate their, uh, their system. And that really is, uh, and in, in therapy, there's EMDR, which is that um, rapid eye sensitization, I'm going to say it wrong, um, desensitization, where you uh, watch someone's finger generally go back and forth, and you, it helps your brain switch from the right side to the left side. And something magical happens where you can actually process your trauma without feeling triggered in your body. And so all of this to be said that in order to actually process trauma, which is what has to happen, has to get reprocessed and reintegrated into your normal memory system. In order to even do that, when you've been through a lot of trauma, you need to learn how to um, regulate your, your arousal system, your alert system, so that you can tolerate the processing that has to happen. How's that for an answer? <laughs> that sounds amazing. I love it. You know, and I know with the brain too, since, you know, it's pain pleasure. And, and when you have such a painful moment in life, if you don't process it, the brain, the ego, so forth, will wrap around a condition and say, okay, that's bad. Anything that comes close to this, we re repel, we reject. We don't want that in our life whatsoever. 
Absolutely. And I, I like to use the analogy of um, shards of glass. If you think about like a mirror, right? And if you punch the mirror, you're going to get shards of glass. And the, each shard represents the way that information gets inputted into our brain. So we have the visual shard. We have the feeling shard. We have the hearing shard, the smelling shard. Um, and, you know, I'm sure I'm missing something there. But all those senses, instead of getting integrated through um the part of the brain that actually integrates all of our senses into one memory in trauma, those shards just get like deposited in our, in our brains in an unintegrated way. So that's why if you've been in a car accident and you hear a loud shattering noise, if you haven't integrated that memory, it really, it, that's like kind of where like, it's almost to the level of a flashback where you get so triggered by that same noise. Cause that, noises stored within you in this like raw unprocessed form or a smell or in like with your mom walking through the hospital the visual on it so when you're in a high state of of fear and, and arousal um for some reason the chemicals that are in your body during that time deposit things in a very clear but unintegrated fashion so reprocessing is taking those different shards and and reprocessing them all together. So by storytelling or by the counseling process or by journaling, somehow weaving them together in real time now so that instead of being so raw and embedded in our brains, they're actually kind of nicely braided together and then can be put away as just a bad memory instead of a traumatic memory. I like that. So uh, we talked a little bit about this before, and I love to ask this. I think this is a perfect time to ask this question about you talk about post-traumatic growth. Is that kind of how that process works or is there more to it? Well, so once you've, you've started to process your trauma, that's when the opportunity for the growth starts to happen. Um, because um, if you talk to people who have survived hard things, Often, because as we talked about, trauma is, you know, around um, the fear of death of yourself or someone that you're caring about. Um, When we start to contemplate that, think about all the existential questions that can arise. You know, what is the purpose and meaning of life? Um, How do I want to spend my time on Earth, right? If I only have a limited amount of time, how do I want my life to look? Um, If I, you know, so sometimes the trauma shakes up people's value systems. Sometimes it shakes up people's priorities. Um, Sometimes it shakes up people's support systems because they realized that they could rely on some people and couldn't rely on other people. Uh, So really it just kind of throws everything into a big hat and shakes it all up. And then you get to take out the pieces and put them back together in the way that makes the most sense for you now. So that's where the post-traumatic growth can happen as you re-put back together all those pieces that kind of got mixed up and shaken apart by the trauma, you get to um, build a better version, right? Um, When you go forward from there. I like that. That makes, that makes perfect sense. Very eloquently explained there. Um, Yeah. Cause I mean, one of my, as you said earlier, one of my missions is how to end suffering. And I always look at it in ways to um, see it more from an aspect of growth rather than something that we hold on to. And I know I did my life for a long time. And then eventually I was like, let me see what I can learn from this. How can I, how can this teach me something? What if I see it in a different way, a different light, a different perspective? And all of a sudden it was like a whole different experience showed up from that. 
Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So you've experienced this yourself. So and then, you know, so when it comes to how about, you know, when it comes to some of these things, when it comes to growth and transformation and uh, these types of things in life, how much does a belief system play a role in this? Because I've, I've had so many conversations with people about this and, and getting through that. How much does their one's belief system affect their life in transformation and success and growth and whatever that label wants to be? Yeah, well, I feel like it's it's 100%. <laughs> you know, there's I wouldn't even take any tenths of a percent off. I, our belief systems absolutely um, control, I think, our destiny. Um, to, and then you can add on if you have a belief in higher powers or, you know, the energy of the universe or whatever you want to call it. Obviously, you know, that is a factor too. But as far as how we respond to what we are given by the universe, um, 100% beliefs is our belief system controls how our life will turn out. Um, and so uh, that's actually a big part of the work I do with my clients is around uh, what I call limiting beliefs. So we all have belief systems, I'm sh- you know, as you know, and they come from our family and our uh, environment and the way we're brought into the world and educated um, and our experiences that are u- unique to us. And sometimes these belief systems are awesome and serve us really well. And sometimes the belief systems um, aren't necessarily serving us well. They, they may be holding us back from fulfilling our full potential in life. And so the work I do with my clients is around figuring out ways to excavate um, the belief system so it becomes clear that it exists. Because I think you probably have heard this statistic before. When we think about our mind, our conscious mind and our subconscious mind are both a part of, quote, our mind. And when we get down to how much we use our conscious mind versus our subconscious mind, the research shows that we are actually using our conscious mind only about 5% of the time. And our subconscious controls literally 95% of our actions and behaviors and thoughts. So part of getting to our limiting beliefs is trying to figure out pathways down into our subconscious so that we can actually kind of bring them those subconscious belief systems up to light and examine them and decide, do, does this work for me or doesn't work for me? And if it's not working for me, what would I like to substitute as a belief system for that? And so I love to, you know, we talk about habits all the time and, you know, we change, I changed my habit around drinking water or I changed my habit around smoking or losing, you know, or eating sugar or whatever, you know, thing, behavior that we talk about habits. But I love the idea that we all have also habits of thought. And, you know, I'm sure you've thought about this concept before, but, you know, the idea that the way in which we actually um, think about certain uh, areas of life, like work is hard, right? So if we have this idea that uh, in order to be successful in life and business, for example, that we have to work hard, um, that's actually a belief system, right? That's a that's a, a kind of embedded into your brain system that is like I believe, have a belief system that in order to move forward, it must be hard and difficult. And so the cool thing is you could take a look at that, especially if you're someone that's overworking yourself and burning yourself out, and it's just not really serving you. You can look at that belief and just kind of ask: Is it true? Right? Is it true that work has to be hard? Or is it possible that there's another way to move forward with a little more ease and grace 
um, and it not and still meet success, right? And then you might you might even be able to grasp that concept in your conscious brain, but the real kicker is to get that message down into your subconscious level to the point where you start believing it, and that's where that habit of thought concept comes in because we have to repeat our new habits of thought over and over again in order to get them like fully wired into our system. As you know, when you talk about neural pathways, we always say that neurons that fire together, wire together. So if there's not a way in which you're kind of consistently repeating this new habit of thought over time, it won't actually wire together and become a a new part of how you are in the world, you know, your way of being in the world. I love that. And how can individuals, you can, I love how you brought up that stat 95%. I always say we're running an autopilot, right? The subconscious is driving. How do those individuals utilize that 5% or how do we become more conscious? I guess if that's the word to use in our daily lives and doing things like that. Well, I think that you, um, you also talk about um, accessing your intuition I remember hearing you talk about that before. Yes. And so when, if you like to think about the subconscious as a form of intuition um, and a way that you, um, when you access the levels of your sub- subconscious, you're able to listen in on those patterns that um, of wisdom, really, that I believe everyone has within them. And so um the, the more that you can access that information, the more wise your conscious mind will, you know, the more information your conscious mind will have to make those wise decisions. So really maximizing your conscious mind means accessing your subconscious mind or unconscious mind, as we call it sometimes in psychology. I love that. And I love when you, you know, it, it, the, the amount, so Hebb's laws, you know, you're sharing the whole nerves that wire together, uh, nerves that fire together, wire together. And it's one of the things, how difficult it is to transform the subconscious. Is it something that you have to put a lot of effort and energy in? Um, or is it something that, because I've, I've studied so many different ways on how to change someone's change a subconscious mind. Uh, I'm curious to add, you know, what is been through your studies and your work, um, h- how hard or easy is it to shift that mind, the subconscious? Well, so I, I think that it can vary, right? So sometimes there is uh, some form of universal or divine intervention, right? So all of a sudden you get a flash, you know, that aha moment or something like that, where I believe that often that's bringing to light this universal truth that you know on, in your subconscious and it brings it up to your conscious level so you can actually acknowledge it. So there's not a lot of work for that, that they, those come, you know, as you let them come. And then there's the other side of the coin, which is some of those um, often fear-based limiting beliefs. Um, they need a little more work to kind of um, dust themselves off. You know, you have to reassure those parts of yourself that you understand that they're there to protect you in order to soothe them enough to let them be there to work with them, if that makes sense. Because our fear-based beliefs um, that really are centering around survival and they're really, really trying to protect us. Sometimes they can just get a little overactive. Um, and so part of the work I also do is like kind of putting names and, and I won't say names and faces, but, you know, figuring out those parts of ourselves that are really trying to protect us. Like the, 
fear of public speaking, for example, you know, uh, your conscious mind knows if I go in front of these human beings and, and talk, I will not die, right? They're not going to rush the stage and attack me um, or publicly humiliate me. But um, your subconscious fear is the one that can make your knees shake and your sweat and think you want to throw up because you're so anxious to get on the stage, at least in my experience um, with public speaking, I often get quite anxious. So, um, so what's happening is there's the part of you that really is trying to protect you from this perceived danger. Um, and that's the at a subconscious level. And so even though your conscious mind knows you're safe, your body is still reacting to the, the wiring of the subconscious part. So that's the part that then you have to be able to access to do the work on. So you have a little divine intervention from time to time or you know, the magical aha moment. And then sometimes you just have that hard work of working with that subconscious program and trying to get it to shift to a more appropriate level of alert, you know, move down from red flag down to yellow or green, you know, level of fear. I love that. And I think putting a name on it or something is like monumentally awesome. I forgot where I got that from years ago. And it was like, just make, not making, you're making light of it. You're being like a kid with it. And it just made it easier um, in some way, shape or form. But um, would you also say too, I, I always like to say like with the mind and the ego and the conditioning and things like that, sometimes you got ego is going to come firing hardcore, especially with something like public speaking, right? What is it? People fear that more than death itself. <laughs> and <clears throat> excuse me, it's one of the things where you can, um, I would say you got to guide through like, hey, ego, I got this. I know you're a little worried about this, but come on, let me, I'll walk you through this. We'll go very slow, right? And it has to be a certain like, it can't be too much, but it has to be a little, um, just enough where you can handle it to a certain degree to start testing it out or getting accustomed to that. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And a hundred percent on all of that. And one thing I like to do though, is I, um, I think the word ego one can get, um, even if it's correct, can get overused. And also it's a little hard to connect to because, you know, we have so many weird associations with the word, you know, we think someone's egotistical, we judge them that that's bad. So I love to just kind of throw out the word ego and use a more descriptive word. And that's what, with the names and stuff. Right. So like, you know, so my, for example, my part of me, that is my fear-based part around public speaking. I have, I've identified it as a dragon. It is a massive fire breathing dragon that comes out to protect me when I need to go public. (laughs) And it is a beast. I don't know if you're a Game of Thrones fan, but it is on par with those dragons in Game of Thrones. And it will put me on the ground to protect me. I will be in a fetal position in the middle of my living room. My kid will walk in and be like, mom, you okay? Um, And so the cool part is now that I've got a name and a face to it, it's this dragon, I can actually have a conversation with it in my mind, right? And I can be like, dude, dragon, chill out. I'm just going to talk to a few people. You know, this is a conversation and I have my own process and I can get the dragon to listen to me. I can get the dragon to calm down. I can get the dragon to actually get this. It turns into a very small duckling when it's actually calm. So it's this whole visualization process that I work with my dragon. And obviously everyone's parts are different, um, but um, it's just a, a way to kind of get away from that word ego and really personalize it to you and what that part looks like and what it thinks it's trying to accomplish and really develop a relationship with it where you can work with it over time. So it's not that ego is wrong at all. It's exactly right. However, I love to just make it a little more unique to each person I work with. 
No, I agree. And I think that's huge. I mean, and it's one of those things where I had someone who wrote a book about the monkey in my head or Mr. Monkey (laughs) and me or something like that. And I just loved it. I'm like, oh my God, monkey, that's something I would use actually. That makes it so much uh, lighter. And and, and you just think of it in the way, like you said, the dragon um, and how it, you know, all those factors that how it plays a role on you and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. But these these are simple ways that people can utilize, I think, in ways to just how to break through these things. And um, I'm just a huge fan of the name thing and and being able to call it something like, you know, mine is just thinking, thinking. I never put it to an, I never have put it to an animal or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I just be like, oh, there goes that stinking thinking. And my nephew, it's funny, he actually, he'll be like, Oh, you know, I don't know why my brain does that. He goes, my brain's not, it's, there's a good and a bad in my brain. And he's like, here comes this. And he call, he likes to label it bad, but he'll just be like, um, or I have a, a, one of my uh, patients, her, the, it's a kiddo. I've been adjusting her since she was like one years old. She's now six. And she'll be like, my gears aren't working. So my brain's not working well. It's my gears. They just don't work well sometimes. Awesome. And I start laughing because I'm like, I'm thinking in my head when she says, I'm like, is she labeling something that's like, you know, my stinking thinking, it's your dragon. And she's saying gears. I'm like kind of curious to see how that works. Um, yeah. No, I love it because also it doesn't personalize it. Like you don't have to, your whole being is not the fact that you, your gears aren't working, right? It's actually your gears. I love how it doesn't pathologize any of us by just naming the part. Exactly. And it takes, for me, at least it takes a lot of stress off me or thinking there's something wrong with me. Like back in the day, I'd be like, Oh my God, there's something wrong with me because like even ego, right? Ego was such a word that a lot of people use. And in my upbringing in energy medicine, it was like ego was the bad thing. And I was always like, I don't get why that would be. And I went through all these studies and my own, my own processes to realize it's actually not to a certain degree. And some people call it inner critic. I've had people, you know, discuss it in that fashion, Uh, but I love the name calling. So I'm just trying to uh, show you how much I like that. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'm glad it resonates with you. I I think it's kind of a a normal human. um, It it works with our human mind and brain and the way we think of concepts. So it's easy to access and and that makes it better, right? (laughs) Easy to to access means more impact. Yes, ma'am. I couldn't agree with you more (laughs) on that one. Um, One question I do want to ask before we kind of wrap up here. Um, I saw this on your, 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 um, um, I don't even know what to call this, but anyhow, imposter syndrome. I'm a huge person about imposter syndrome. Uh, one day I'm going to write a book on this, but um, what is imposter syndrome for the listeners uh, to kind of, and is it something we see a lot of in today's era? Cause that was one question I wanted to ask before, like, you know, and let me, I'll, I'll come back to the imposter thing, but it, when it was, when you were being a lawyer and stuff and you got to that one point and then you're kind of like, I don't know if I like this anymore. Was there an idea in your head that this is where, um, this is being a lawyer. This is what it's going to be like. This is what's going to be success, all these things. And then eventually you got there in your story, in your life. And you're like, mm, this is not all what I thought it was all added up to be. Um, I, yes. Um, I think that it was more that my life circumstances changed enough that all that came with being a lawyer just wasn't matching me and what I wanted to like, how I wanted to live the rest of my life. You know, if you think about that exercise, I think it's in Scott Peck exercise where you write your own obituary um, so that, you you know, to kind of give yourself that perspective, like what do I want to accomplish before I die? So, so my shifting out of of the law wasn't really that I was uh, the law wasn't what I thought it was. It was that I wasn't what I thought I was. if that makes sense. And I really needed to become a more authentic self. And Uh, so, um, and so 
but but so I'm going to change topics to imposter syndrome because you you mentioned it and kind of distinguish that from from you know other concepts because um and it's been coming up a lot lately in my work for some reason but imposter syndrome in general is the idea that despite your degree of success or your degree of learning or your degree of performance high degree of performance you internally feel like you're a fraud um and that or you very much think that other people might be judging you as a fraud. Um, and so that's a super uncomfortable feeling for people to have, right? So, you know, this can be somebody who's really successful in their field. And so what I uh, believe and understand about imposter syndrome is that your outward performance is at that level and you have not updated your internal belief systems enough to catch up to where you are for whatever reason. Um, and so a lot of the work that you do with people who have a pretty solid imposter syndrome going is around challenging those limiting beliefs and those internal belief systems that aren't letting themselves kind of absorb and receive the fact that they are actually performing at that level. And so it's kind of an updating that has to happen. But I also would like to point out there's a kind of imposter syndrome that comes up normally for anyone who's learning and growing. And so I think this is where people might get stuck from time to time, because anytime you're going to learn and grow, you have to move from your comfort zone to a zone of discomfort. And by and you have to start acting as if you are the next level of your whatever it is before you feel comfortable being that person. And so that, that there is a gap between what you're doing out in the world and how you feel your personal identity is around that mastery. And so it just simply takes time to close the gap between actually performing at a higher level and then feeling as if you actually are embodying that person. And so as we grow over time throughout different phases of our lives, we have to close that gap over and over again. And so that actually, that uncomfortable feeling of feeling a bit like an imposter can sometimes just stop people in their tracks and they don't grow, they don't change because it's uncomfortable. And so, um, so, but that kind of feeling uncomfortable and a bit like an imposter as you grow into a new version of yourself, there's nothing pathological about that. That's just, that's normal discomfort. And we all, I think, who have experienced kind of pushing ourselves to the edge of our performance have experienced that kind of feeling before. Does that, does that make sense? That makes perfect sense to me. And it's, it's very similar to what I went through. That's why, because I thought, but mine was a little little different, but still the same where it was like, this is what I think success is as a chiropractor. This is what I think I should be doing. This is what successful chiropractors do. And I got into that mode. And then when I got to that level and I got to success, all of a sudden I was like, this is not me. This is not how I wanted to do it. I was like, this is totally, I don't feel fulfilled at all. And I'm like, if this is how it is, I'm not happy with this. And then eventually made changes in my, my practice and so forth to be more of what I wanted it to be. So I was more fulfilled in that process. Awesome. I love it. Yep. We, it's a, you know, you had the courage to do it and probably a lot of your belief systems um, and your confidence level that you can change yourself must've been built up over time because not everyone could make that leap. Yeah. And it was something, you know, and, and, and I had to make a choice where we, um, we, we reduced, uh, what was it? 38% financially in the next year because of the choices I was making because of how we were shifting the practice. Um, we made it back in a couple of years and got back to where we are, but it was one of the things where it was like, 
it was scary. I remember telling my wife, I'm like, we're going to make this change. This is what we're going to do. We're going to have to let people out of the office because they just don't vibe with what we want to do with the services that we want to create for people. And I just said, just trust me. We will get through this. It may be a year, maybe three years. I don't know, but I'm like, we're going to do this. And she was like, I'm in, I trust you. Let's do it. And all of a sudden it's been, you know, I'm happier. I'm less stressed. I work less, but it's more joy. Uh, it's funny how that all works out. So right. I digress. Love it. Love it. Um, real quick, um, as we're wrapping up here, I always like to make sure how can people connect with you? How can they follow what you're up to? Um, all the social media channels and everything um, that you have. Well, so I have to admit my social media channels are, are limited, but there's absolutely really direct ways people can access me. So that's kind of fun. So um, I, I have a company called April Positive, which is um uh, my coaching and consulting company. And it's kind of like a pro positive, if you think about it. Um, and so my website's www.apropositive.com, but I answer my own email. So uh, if you write Kirsten at apropositive.com, I will get your email. And I do run a group um, in Facebook because it uh, was convenient and it's a nice way to get people together. And it's called Becoming Boundless. And you can find it on Facebook by my URL. There is you becoming boundless, you know, Y-O-U becoming boundless um, to distinguish it from other groups that may have the same phrase. And then in there, I run free trainings uh, on a pretty regular basis and come on live and do, I call it my Wednesday wisdom live, where I share my own geek isms with people and try to spread the knowledge to the world. Um, and so that's the place where I, and I just finished up a masterclass, um, Tuesday this week where we did a whole, um, advanced mindset, uh, masterclass on how to, um, what I called it expand into power, meaning inner power. How do you, what are the mindset shifts you have to make to really up level and feel that you're in command and control of your own life? Um, and so we, we are went into limiting beliefs and all the things you and I talked about today, um, and imposter syndrome and perfectionism. We, we addressed all those things. So I'll be definitely running another uh, masterclass, um, either in February or March. I haven't nailed down the date yet, but if you come into the group, then you'll get all the messages and know that the free trainings are coming. So I invite anyone to pop on Facebook and find, um, you becoming boundless and join us there. Awesome. I love it. And for all the listeners, I will have all that info in the show notes for you. Uh, Kirsten, this was awesome to have you on. I appreciate you taking your time. This was wonderful. Uh, I learned a lot. I know the listeners are going to learn a lot and I appreciate the work that you're doing. Well, likewise, back at you. And it was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the podcast. For past shows, please visit www.empoweryourreality.com. I hope this show inspired you and added to your life to help you on the journey to rediscover who you really are. To connect with us on Facebook, please visit www.facebook.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. Check us out on Twitter. The handle is Dr. Vic 21. Follow us on Instagram, www.instagram.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. If you were inspired by the podcast, Pay it forward by sharing it with someone who you know can benefit from it. Thank you again for listening to the Mindful Experiment podcast, sharing paths to help you rediscover your infinite potential. Mm-hmm.